WCNC Charlotte. This is Flashpoint. Thanks for joining us here on Flashpoint. I'm Ben Thompson. A seismic shift in Carolina politics in the last week or so. And it's a shift you probably didn't even notice because it's been years in the making. New numbers show more voters in North Carolina are now registered as unaffiliated versus Republican or Democrats. Of North Carolina's roughly 7.2 million voters, about 35% of them are registered unaffiliated by just a hair compared to 34% who are registered Democrats and 30% who are registered Republicans, proving North Carolina is indeed a purple state. Joining us today to break it all down for us, Catawba College professor, friend of the show, Dr. Michael Bitzer. Doctor, thanks for coming on as always. We appreciate it. My pleasure. All right, so registered unaffiliated voters now have a slight edge on Democrats in the state, I think by, by just about a few hundred votes. It's, it's, it's not that many people. Um, much larger advantage over Republicans. Is this a moment in time, flash in the pan sort of thing, or is this the trend that's happening? This has been the trend that has been happening for several uh, decades now. Registered unaffiliateds here in North Carolina and really across the country have been rising in comparison to the partisans, Democrats and Republicans. Back in September of 2017, in North Carolina, unaffiliated surpassed Republicans to become the second largest bloc. This week, we have unaffiliated surpassing Democrats as the largest bloc of the 7.2 million registered voters in the state. So this is trending as the nation is trending. However, I would be very reticent to say that all of these unaffiliated are pure independents. Most of them would be, I think, uh, closeted partisans. They just don't like the party label, or perhaps they are wanting other things other than what the two parties are offering. So why did somebody uh, change their affiliation uh, to unaffiliated? Um, what, beyond, beyond the idea of that they actually truly are independent, uh, what would be the reasons? Well, I think one of the reasons here in North Carolina is that unaffiliated have the opportunity to pick one party's primary over the other. We've got a primary election coming up in May. Unaffiliated can make the decision as to whether they want to vote in the Democratic primary or the Republican primary. If you are a registered partisan, you're not allowed to vote in the other party's primary. What does this mean specifically for one, for Democrats, and for two, Republicans. What I know from the research that I've done about voting behavior is that these unaffiliated tend to lean slightly Republican, so that there is a slight advantage among this unaffiliated pool of voters to the Republican Party. That's something Democrats are going to have to be concerned about. The other aspect for the Democrats is that these unaffiliated voters tend to be overwhelmingly under the age of 40. Registered unaffiliated voters among millennials and particularly now Gen Z has been the majority and plurality of those registered voters of those cohorts. And if the national dynamics of those younger voters tend to trend in ways that are beneficial to Democrats, we could see a slight change moving forward as generations tend to replace themselves. The big concern, however, for registered unaffiliated, they don't show up at rates comparable to registered partisans. They are always below the state average in terms of turnout rates in elections. So while the bulk of the registered voters may be unaffiliated, 
They just don't care to show up as much as registered Democrats and registered Republicans. Um, do these numbers have any real world ramifications when it comes to our elected bodies? Um, you know, is anything decided on these numbers? Well, I think certainly in some districts, particularly state legislative, perhaps congressional district, if you look at the pool of who the voters are in those districts, unaffiliateds are becoming the significant chunk of voters, and that makes it harder for the candidates to try and figure out who and where their party loyalties lie. Now, you can decipher some things, but when it comes to actually electing individuals, I think we are still going to have the two major parties, Democrats and Republicans, uh, join and, and really be the most predominant of the elected officials. You know, there's been a call for a third party. There's always claims that the two parties don't represent a lot of voters, but unaffiliateds just don't seem to be energized as much to register and to get onto the ballot as independent candidates. That could change in the future, but for right now, we're stuck with the two major parties. And even though this is a big sort of seismic shift in politics here in North Carolina and unaffiliated outnumbering registered Democrats and Republicans, we do not make it easy for unaffiliated candidates. Correct. The, the, the process for getting on the ballot is extremely difficult. And so I think that that's going to be a continued hindrance for independent candidates if these unaffiliateds are true independents and want different things from the two parties. It's going to be hard for their voices to be represented at the table. Explain why we don't have evenly split legislative bodies. Well, yeah, the, the particular dynamic, and that's a great question, the particular dynamic is the fact that we elect single individuals from single member districts, and if you win, say, 51% of the vote out of that district, you get 100% of that seat. So by just basic normative standards, whoever wins within a district is going to get the disproportionate share of that seat, meaning 100%. That tends to stack the deck already for those parties that tend to win the majority of the seats. They overwin in terms of their actual seats. So that's just part of the natural dynamic. It's part of the election system. Single members, you win more than the person who comes in second, one more vote than the person who comes in second, you get 100% of that seat. What does this say about the rural red parts of North Carolina and the blue urban parts of North Carolina? Um, and how do these unaffiliated fit into those? Well, certainly from some of the research that I've done in terms of precincts, we know that in rural counties, they are moving more and more Republican in the urban uh, core areas like Charlotte, like Raleigh, it's becoming deeper and deeper blue. 70% of all the precincts across North Carolina are landslide precincts, meaning that they vote for one party over the other by 60%. Only 15% of all of the state's precincts are competitive within 50 to 55. So the dynamic of unaffiliated, if you happen to live within one of these landslide precincts, you're probably voting for that particular political party. If Democrats live in cities and Republicans live in the more rural parts, which again, oversimplification, mm -hmm. then where do the unaffiliated live? 
they live actually across all of the areas, all of the regions. So urban suburbs, uh, along with the central cities, the surrounding suburban areas, the rural areas, actually registered unaffiliated are fairly distributed across all of those four different regions of the state. So that makes them an important component where registered Democrats tend to be in central cities, Republicans tend to be in the surrounding suburban counties and the rural counties. Interesting, very interesting. All right, Professor Bitzer, thank you as always. We appreciate it. My pleasure. More Flashpoint after this. Welcome back to Flashpoint. Today, we continue to look at the power of unaffiliated voters. North Carolina now has more of them versus either party. It's a big shift just in the last week or so. Here in Mecklenburg County, there are still more Democrats, but unaffiliated voters beat out registered Republicans years ago. And someone running as an unaffiliated candidate has to jump through extra hoops just to get on the ballot. Jennifer Moxley knows firsthand she's looking to run for Charlotte City Council in District 1 as an unaffiliated candidate. First, though, she's got to get 1,323 signatures in the district to appear on the ballot. Uh, Jennifer, thanks for coming on. We appreciate it. Absolutely. All right, explain, for one, why that odd number. So it's 1.5% of registered voters in the area which you would represent. So if you were running in a county race, you would take 1.5% of all registered voters across the county. And where do you stand right now? <laughs> It's such a tricky question. I am at 57, 57. We like, we're, we like that we're on the early end of this, uh, of your campaign. So how does this work? Do you appear in both the primary and the general or, or how, how do they differentiate? So if I'm able to get the, the number of vote, uh, it, if I'm able to get the number of signatures that I need to appear on the ballot, then I would be on the ballot for the primary, whenever that's going to be. So the deadline for me to turn in the signatures to the Board of Elections for verification is also still up in the air. It's either uh, in April or in early May. Um, but I definitely am not wasting any time. I'm doing the best I can, being an entrepreneur, working full time, having commitments, and then trying to go out and meet random people, give them my pitch, and get their signature on a piece of paper. <laughs> so if you appear in the primary, are you primarying against other unaffiliated? Is that how it works? Yeah, I'm not real sure of the details of that. There are, There is an option for other people to do what I'm doing. I asked the Board of Elections because uh, a lot of people have come up to me and asked about this. We have so many unaffiliated voters in the county, and because District 1 doesn't have a lot of um, unaffiliated candidates in the conversation other than myself, a lot of people have asked, can I do what you're doing? And absolutely, you can. You have to fill out a form and send it to the Board of Elections, and they'll give you the printout with your name on it and and slots for 20 signatures. And then if you turn it in on time and they're validated, then you would be on the ballot. And I, I don't know what that looks like. This is sure. all still a very new experience for me, as it is for a lot of people, because not many people were aware that I would have to petition to be on the ballot. And, and to that point, how do you think that, that impacts our politics, that we have um, unaffiliated voters outnumbering the other two parties uh, when it comes to the state of North Carolina. In Mecklenburg County, Democrats still outnumber, but I mean, it's not it's not that big a difference and, and unaffiliated still far outnumber Republicans. Um, what do you think that does to our politics when those numbers are what they are, yet a candidate like you has to jump through the hurdles you have to? 
It's really interesting that it's another obstacle candidates unaffiliated with parties have to overcome. And if I had my money order ready to file $216 and, you know, to find out that I now have this next step um, is just another thing in our elections process that isn't fair and equitable. And I'm hoping to bring light to that so we can have these conversations and see what needs to be done, if anything. The overwhelming response from people I've personally met in talk to is this is not fair. Uh, you know, even if I was registered Democrat or Republican, I would not have needed an endorsement from the actual party. I just would have been registered. I would have randomly walked in off the street, paid $216 and been on the ballot. So the argument that being unaffiliated, we don't want every Joe Smith and Nancy off the street running as an unaffiliated candidate is really not valid because that could happen as a Republican or a Democrat. And we're not seeing that happen now, kind of. <laughs> well, let me ask you, some people would say, well, why don't you just run as a Democrat or a Republican? Or Why are you unaffiliated? Well, I've been a news reporter most of my career. I've worked in the media. I've worked with both campaigns from the local level all the way up to the presidential campaign. I've worked with both parties. Not only the fact that my career lends itself to be an unaffiliated candidate, uh, but my personal beliefs lie in the middle of a lot of issues, like a lot of people. There's so much gray area in the major topics that we talk about and even in the nitty gritty. And I think my journalism career exposed me to both sides of so many issues that I, I really do have a lot of gray area and it comes down to what's best for people and making the best decision you can with the information that you have available but then also doing better when you know better so it would be disingenuous for me to register with a party just to make this easier and I think that is just a core value of who I am as a person um, why make it easier just because it can be easier when that's not really what I stand for yeah. and and I also want to add this is my first journey into politics, but I already know I don't want an organization telling me what's best for the people in my community and the people in District 1. I already know that. Um, so why would I tie myself to that? Now, I know there's money attached to that. And there again, another obstacle. Um, but I have faith, Ben. I have faith that if this is meant to be, it will work out. If people in the county, in the city, in District 1 really believe an unaffiliated candidate should have a chance it will unfold that way and people might not realize this because of course journalists and media members get a bad name but most journalists and members of the media I know are fairly fair-minded and independent-minded um, people and, Absolutely. and folks don't realize you know, that go ahead that media background truly exposed me to every side of so many topics and and really core values that I believed one way as a young person and then was exposed to firsthand experiences and, and really changed my perspective. And then I take that information and anyone who knows me knows I share that information as an educator. It's, it's just a part of who I am. I love teaching people things. I love learning something, gleaning information, and then sharing that with others so we can be just a more informed community. And this process has, has really been one of those things, the unaffiliated candidate process. I, I know you say that it's un unfair, and I think a lot of people sort of are hearing you and, and agree with that, considering the numbers of unaffiliated voters in Charlotte and across the, the state of North Carolina. But you referenced this a second ago. Election workers, if, if they were here right now, they would say having a petition at least 
for unaffiliated candidates weeds out some of the non-serious candidates. Otherwise, you could nothing would stop us from having 500 people running for a specific office. The parties have it in their best interest not to let that happen for them. There's not that sort of mechanism in place for that to happen for unaffiliated. What would you say to those election workers who say, hey, guys, this keeps us from having just chaotic ballots? Yeah, I would push back and say, well, what measures are in place to stop me from being a Democrat or a Republican paying $216 and being on the ballot? There are no measures in place for either political party to weed out candidates from filing. There are none. Now, once you file and you're on the ballot, now the political party gets involved and can stand behind people. But that's not what people are talking about when they ask your question. We don't want them on the ballot. We don't even want their name out there, you know, because they're wing nuts. But I, I'm going to push back on that because, again, if I had been a Republican or a Democrat, my name would be on the ballot, along with all the other people who had $216 that, that weekend that week well it's an interesting topic uh, in a growing and changing um sort of landscape of politics here in charlotte and across the state as well, uh, well we and then if i can ahead. just add sure. also why do we want the process to weed out people i don't think that is really how americans view our election process we don't want money we don't want the process to weed out viable candidates or people who represent the community and as someone with no political background i have no family money i have no legacy last name i'm exploring this journey of of what is it like for someone who is a civic-minded person to actually run for office and make it? And so when we start seeing snarky comments and when we start feeling this kind of, who do you think you are, that also makes me raise eyebrows of, well, isn't that what this process is supposed to be? And I've been a citizen in this community for a very long time, incredibly involved. I've taken the Citizens Leadership Academy, the Fire Department Academy. I'm currently in the Aviation Academy. I took the Sister Cities Ambassador Program. So I've been actively engaged in learning about Charlotte. So I may be a public servant. And to have people say, well, you know, we really want to weed you out, that, that is really the question that I think everyone should be talking about is who wants to weed out whom? Hopefully just the voters. The voters will decide that uh, when it comes to the ballot box, both for primary and the general election. Jennifer Moxley uh, running for District 1, unaffiliated, we should say. Jennifer, thank you. We appreciate it. Thank you so much for your time. More Flashpoint after this. Welcome back to Flashpoint, a new push to make Cats City buses more safe. It comes after the death of Ethan Rivera. He was a Cats bus driver who was shot and killed on the job. Now Republicans running for city council got together to create a new safety feature for the buses. WCNC Charles Jesse Pierre has more. Your safety is first priority, and us figuring out how that doesn't ever happen again is a close second. The Republican slate for Charlotte City Council presenting a bulletproof enclosure outside of the Charlotte Transit Center, a prototype they created for cats. Here's how fast we can do it in a week. From idea to the first one that's ready to bolt in as soon as OSHA says yes. Here are the blueprints and the instructions to install it. It's time to stand up. This comes after several weeks of outcry for better protections for bus drivers following the shooting death of cats bus driver Ethan Rivera last month. The collaboration includes several local businesses. People might skimp out. This is a lot of material right here. And city council member Tariq Bakari says it also creates its own stream of income to fund it. This design offers an opportunity for us to create three by three and four by four tiles where companies can come and advertise. 
Katz tells us they were not aware of these efforts, but says it has been in discussion with their primary bus manufacturer about potential bulletproof glass enclosures for several weeks. And they were told there were no current options available at this time. Katz also says installing these enclosures would require a complete analysis of the operator's area. They would have to look into how the additional weight of the glass impacts the bus performance and safety. But Bakari says his group plans to present the prototype to the agency. We jump into action and build and execute and do just like a startup does. Jesse Pierre reporting for us there. Kat says it is still open to further discussions about the bulletproof enclosures, but in the meantime, it's ramping up security efforts on buses and at the transit center there in Uptown as well. It's also working on de-escalation training for some of its employees. More Flashpoint after this. Before we leave you, folks, come interact with us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook as well. If there's something you want us to talk about here on Flashpoint, let us know. Don't be shy. And always remember to listen and subscribe to our podcast. You can find it wherever you get yours. And we'll see you back here next weekend.